to day 220 of Journey Through Scripture. I always feel so accomplished whenever I hit a multiple of 10 for some reason, probably my OCD. Uh, today we're going to be in 1 Chronicles 26:20 through chapter 27, and then Proverbs chapter 19, verses 13 through 22, and 1 Corinthians 4. Okay, um... Continuing to wind down Chronicles here, just learning more about um, those who administrated the kingdom uh, for David. Um, you know, probably pretty used to this stuff by now, so I'm, I'm not going to labor too much on it here. Um, you got a lot of um, guys who have to do with, like, the treasuries um, that David had, um, treasury of the temple and and the, the, the way in which, I guess, you know, his kingdom... Uh, derived uh, material support, um, and so, uh, yeah, like uh, I think verse 27 here in chapter 26 kind of uh, gives you the picture from the spoil won in battles, they dedicated gifts for the maintenance of the house of Yahweh, and um, it, and then you've got like even some of these other guys who are like military guys, like uh, like Saul, well Saul, King Saul, but then Abner, son of Ner, Joab, son of Zeroyah, so, you know, c- commanders of armies, also dedicating stuff that is, uh, of course, taken in battle. Um, I want to, uh, I guess, one thing to flag here, and we've seen this before, but I don't think I've mentioned it, but Samuel is mentioned as, um, uh, in verse 28 too, alongside those guys, and uh, it's just noteworthy, I think, that uh, Samuel, the seer, as he is called consistently in First Chronicles, uh, really we're not very told pretty much anything about him in the account of Chronicles. Um, you've got um, guys um, in, in, at the end of chapter 26, you've got these guys who are basically over the, um, uh, the it, it appears to be, uh, the way it calls it is external duties, ha-melakah, ha um external duties. And th- these guys... Um, and um, this is uh, Hananiah and Jerijah. Um, these are guys who um, have like big responsibilities. Essentially, it seems like all like oversight of the west of the Jordan and oversight of the east of the Jordan. So, um, and these are guys who do like as it says everything pertaining to God and the for the affairs of the king. So. Seems like these are kind of, you know, important guys who have an enormous amount of responsibility here. Um, chapter 27 uh, gives us some interesting stuff in that uh, it it kind of tells us a little bit about uh, David's army. And that is that um, you basically have 24,000 coming each month on this rotation. So the different, um, uh, the different, uh, the, the, the different individuals who are who are um, delineated here each have charge over twenty four thousand as the uh, you know the heads of the um, of the military force and that's because Israel doesn't have like a standing army okay they have um, people who come and they fight uh, perhaps by duty perhaps by will but and and if that's the case you know these guys have to have um, they have to have lives. They have to be able to work their land, t- tend to their flocks and everything. So this is the military responsibility of, uh, of Israel. Um, and uh, verse 23, I think, is noteworthy in this chapter. David, um, he, he takes this um, 
you know you have you have this uh, uh, this tally this this these guys who are conscripted conscripted uh, but note David did not count those below 20 years of age for the Lord for Yahweh had promised to make Israel as many as the stars of the heaven uh, Joab the son of Zeruiah began to count but did not finish yet wrath came upon Israel for this and the number was not entered in chron- the chronicles of David so um, this gives us uh, uh, perhaps a little bit of a hint of that, um, you know, that census that David is judged for in, in uh, chapter, uh, uh, was I think chapter 21. It, it's connected with uh, confidence in the promise to Abraham. Okay, um, uh, essentially do you doubt Genesis 15 because um, it seems to me, you know, if you're counting every single little one, um, it's like, wait, don't, don't you trust God? Why do you, why do you care? This isn't it enough to know that like the next generation, uh, God is going to, uh, if you, if you obey him, he's going to continue to give you enough people to, um, continue as a nation and, and to receive the blessings that he's promised to you. Um, finally, we have people who are over all this other kind of stuff that the, that David owns. So you have those who are, over the treasuries in the country, over those who work the field, over vineyards, over wine cellars, over olive and sycamore trees, over stores of oil, over herds um, that are pastured in the Sharon or Sharon, and uh, over the herds uh, in the valleys, over the camels, over the donkeys, over the flocks. Uh, all these are stewards of David's property, so uh, people who are in charge of stuff. Um, yeah, and then it finishes off in chapter 27 with some guys who are uh, counselors. Uh, note some familiar names here, uh, particularly Ahitophel, who becomes Absalom's counselor. And remember, Hushai the archite there is kind of David's inside man there, right, to, to, um, uh, to defeat the council that uh, Absalom is, is receiving and to also be uh, somewhat of a spy for David. Um, when he's not able to be in Jerusalem. Okay, let's go over now to Proverbs 19, 13 through 22. If there wasn't a ton of exciting stuff in First Chronicles, I think this run from Proverbs is pretty uh, is pretty pretty good. There's a lot of um, a lot of cool Proverbs today. I think. So to start off, a foolish son is ruined to his father, um, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. So basically, the way in which our choices don't just affect us, um, they they affect our um, circles of influence, starting with our family, and um, and so uh, it's especially true with the son to his father and the wife's quarreling. Right, that like if there's a lot of fighting within a marriage, and I think if you do any marriage counseling with people, you know people come come to you and and want to talk about kind of what's going on. Um, this is kind of one of the uh, one of the things that you see, and it doesn't just go um, it doesn't just go towards uh, you know women. Um, I think I think men husbands can do this too, where if there's just like constant little like fights about every little thing, like that's a real warning sign. And if you're experiencing that in your marriage, like you should, really should start going to some kind of counseling to try to work that out because like one of the uh, one of the signals of a relationship that's compromised is that it can't bear stress from 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 things um and uh, big things yeah but um even the little things 
uh, kind of turn into fights that are way bigger than they should be. So um, something to something to keep in mind for those of you who are married. Um, a, a house and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. I like that, right? Because, um, like, it's um, uh, if if you have if you have a lot of stuff that that are in your that's in your inheritance, right? Like, yeah, thank your. I mean, obviously, thank the Lord. Uh, but there's a very uh, human way to kind of account for that. But if the woman whom you marry or the husband whom you marry is is prudent and is um, and is uh, godly, then that's God's work. And so it, as much as you might thank the Lord that you have enough um, uh, possessions and, and provision, things like that, um, thank him even more for, um, for, for some, but for having, uh, uh, and I like here how it says prudent, right? Somebody, uh, you're, you're, you're married to someone who is wise, who is using, um, using the resources they have wisely. Uh, sloth, flo, sl, okay, I'll try that again. Slothfulness casts into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hungry. I think it's pretty um, straightforward what that means, right? Like the importance of diligence um, and um, something, uh, I don't know, maybe something uh, worth worth writing down for those of us who struggle with procrastination. Whoever keeps the commandment keeps his life, and he, but he who despises his ways will die. So the importance of keeping God's commands there. Whoever is generous to the poor, this, I like this, right, lends to Yahweh. Um, that's, that's how we should think of it, right? Like, I think it's important to have that open kind of Deuteronomy pass, um, um, posture towards those who are in need, yeah, that you... Uh, your hand shall be open to the poor, right? That that uh, when people are in need, um, do you do you give generously to them, knowing that in doing that you are um, you are essentially giving to God. This is something that God wants you to do, and I and I think that's an important aspect of giving, especially giving like not explicitly to like church or to like missions and stuff like you know stuff that's. Uh, blatantly and very directly geared towards worship and gospel ministry and stuff. I mean, everything we do should be gospel ministry, but you know what I mean? Stuff that's not like, that's more needs-based. Um, I think it's very important to see that as as the way I treat this person. In essence, like I'm, uh, a very biblical way to think of it is I'm actually giving to the Lord. I'm being generous um, and kind of pondering what that means. Um and and he will repay him for his deed. So you you're giving to the Lord, and the Lord will repay you for your deed, right? Because the the poor can't. The poor can say thank you, um, and and that's that's why I think you have that interesting word here. Lends to the Lord, okay? Because the Lord um, the Lord does I think shower good. He he takes note when we are generous and when we give. Um, Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Okay, um, the meaning here is not that <laughs> you have some reason to kill your son, but but don't do it. Uh, don't do it. No, it's it's essentially that uh, the importance of discipline, and this is a Proverbs theme that is actually picked up really um, heavily uh, by the writer of Hebrews. 
um, kind of talking about like the hard things that we go through as Christians that, you know, God disciplines us like a, like an earthly father disciplines us for our good, uh, to bring about wisdom, to bring, bring about strength and things like that. Um, but here, of course, like the advice for the father is um, that there there is, even if your your child is difficult, discipline can bring them around. And if you don't do it, it's like you're setting your heart on on putting him to death, on killing him. Um, so like you do your child a great disservice if you don't discipline them. And probably worth mentioning here that uh, discipline is uh, is a broad category for a lot of stuff. So this isn't like, you know, you, you, you've got to be hitting your kids or something like that. This is all forms of discipline, everything from being like, okay, um, no, you can't spend all day on screens today. Uh, instead, we're going to do this to, you know, making sure they do their homework to making, um, you know, e- even even in terms of like habits, getting them used to talking freely about God um, uh, in the home and, and cultivating their own devotion life and their own walk with the Lord, like all of those things. Um, I think fall under the category of of discipline, things you do to like train them in the right way. A man of great wrath will pay the penalty, for if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. Okay, <laughs> so um, if somebody is 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 bound to getting themselves in trouble, um, uh, be, be cautious, right? Because if you if you help them out, if you help them out of the bind that they've got themselves into. Uh, probably is only going to be a matter of time before you're getting that phone call again. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Um, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of Yahweh that will stand. I like that. That's, I think, an important verse to to contribute to our understanding of God's sovereignty, Um, that that the things that ultimately happen in my life are going to be the will of God, and so I kind of have to hold my plans loosely hold them with an open open hand and realize that God might have something very different for me than I thought that I had for myself um, but he loves me and he he this is this is for my good and for his glory what is desired in a man is steadfast love and a poor man is better than a liar okay uh, so I like this pro- concept in Proverbs uh, when we come across it we find another we'll see another one that has this very similar idea but I love uh, the idea that, um, you know, here is chesed, which often is attributed to God. And that when with God, it's like his fidelity to his covenant, even when his obligation, his side of the deal is, uh, you know, he's fulfilled it and we've broken ours. And so he has like the, the, I guess you could say the legal right to back out, but no, he's going to be committed to us because he loves us and he's going to be committed to um, to staying in the covenant and to giving us like a zillion chances and and even to being the one who enables us to keep our our end of the covenant and so uh, this, is that reflected in who you are um, that's what really matters in the life of a person is is uh, this ability uh, to be faithful to the things that you've committed yourself to yes but also um, to the things that the Lord has for you to do Um and uh, it's better to be poor than to be a liar, okay? So a liar is somebody who gets um, committed to things um, or um, and, and, and forsakes them, um, you know, just um, 
he'll talk himself up, but uh, when push comes to shove, there's no chesed there. There's no steadfast love. All right, let's go now to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, so uh, remember what we looked at yesterday in um, chapter 3, how there's a lot of stuff there about like um, people getting behind Paul, people getting behind Apollos, and and Paul wants to correct that way of thinking and being like, look, look we're just servants. Uh, we um, uh, It is the Lord who gives the growth. Um, that's whom, whom you, you need to be looking to. And um, so this factionalism really has no place in the church. And um, and as for like the leaders, right, as for people who come and build on one another's work, uh, whether or not they're teaching you to live according to the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of the world, whether or not they're they're exacerbating these 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 factions among you, this, these divisions among you, that will one day be revealed in God's judgment. Um, and and so and even um, you know people who do that and people who are who who cause divisions in the church and 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 people who perpetuate them, uh, they're even destroying God's temple was the language uh, yesterday, and so um, and this will become increasingly clear in the Corinthian correspondence. One of the things that the church is falling prey to is being overly impressed with people who are really like wise in the eyes of the world, the, right? People who are uh, people who have it all together, uh, people who are, are good at rhetoric and speaking well and all this stuff, you know, like they're too impressed with that and that's going to snare them. And so, uh, you know, one way to, one way to maybe um, uh, kind of summarize the things that, that the Corinthian church is, uh, one of the reasons why they're so sick the right, right one of the reasons why it's such an unhealthy church at this point is because they're they're importing these ungodly values and an ungodly way of looking at people and viewing people into the church. And so now in this chapter, Paul is going to begin talking about um about how he as an apostle, a true apostle, like, look at my life. I'm a true apostle of Jesus. Does my life line up with the values that you guys are adopting? And that's essentially going to be his his argument in chapter four. So he, he begins with, again, a, a, a good way of viewing, a good Christian view of leadership, right? How do we view the leaders among us? And he says, this is how one should regard us as we are servants of Christ, okay, we serve Christ, and we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Okay, think of a steward, right? A steward is somebody who doesn't own it, uh, but they're entrusted with it. They're entrusted with care for it, okay? So that's that's how I, we apostles are entrusted, um, or, or we leaders, right? Because he's also talking about Apollos, we're entrusted with these these um, the, the things of God um, and and to um, uh, do ministry according accordingly, um, and it's it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. So I'm, I need to be faithful to the Lord who's called me. Leaders need to be faithful to the Lord. Um, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Okay, so I don't really I don't derive my my sense of job well done from whether or not you think it, okay? In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted, okay? It is the Lord who judges me. 
So a couple things going on here. Um, so Paul's essentially saying like, I, I don't obsess in like, notice first of all that he's not like obsessed in navel gazing, that he's, you know, constantly, um, constantly, uh, constantly obsessed with, with himself and his own shortcomings and things like that. No, he's got a mission to do. And that's like what his eyes are on. His eyes are on knowing Jesus and making him known. And, um, so, uh, so I think you get that from this, but you also get the, the idea that he's, he is serving in a, in a clear conscience. It's not as if like, if he had some blatant sin, he'd just be fine with it and be like, oh, I'm not navel gazing. No, he's, he's, he's not aware of anything against himself. Um, but, but it, he also understands that he's not his own judge. He's not, I'm not thereby acquitted simply because I think that I'm in the clear in terms of how I'm serving the Lord, right? It's the Lord who judges me. Um, but, uh, but I'm, but I'm not going, but I'm, but it's a small thing for me to be judged by you or any other human being. Like I'm serving the Lord. Um, and it's the Lord who judges me. And, um, and so whether or not some group among you thinks I'm the best or some group among you maybe doesn't like me very much, I don't really care because I'm serving the Lord. Um, so don't pronounce judgment before the time. Okay, because remember what he just talked about in the last chapter. He talked about how like the day will reveal each one's work by fire. He's he is the one who, as it says here, will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his common uh, commendation from God. Um, uh, very, you know, again, very similar to to what we saw in the last chapter. And then he says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, right? It's important that you see this. It's not just important that, that we think of ourselves this way, but you need to see it too, um, because you need to learn, um, um, by, um, you may, you need to learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor against one another. Notice we're still talking about this disunity, right? This this uh, this prideful wisdom of the world type stuff. Um, and now, what does he mean by this? That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Okay, um, <clears throat> this is. Uh, this is a verse. This is a statement. I think that is very susceptible to uh, what's called proof tech proof texting, where you basically have this idea that you want to endorse with scripture, and so you find a Bible verse that like kind of can be made to say that, and you just say, "Here, I found something. Therefore, this belief is vindicated." And you haven't really done the hard work of understanding the context, um, understanding maybe o- other important points of theological construction, etc. And so when we um, Protestants are looking to <clears throat> vindicate our uh, doctrine of Scripture, which typically, at least part of it, is um, summarized by the classic Reformation slogan, sola scriptura, this verse can sometimes be brought into the mix. Now, what is sola scriptura? Sola scriptura is kind of the, the fancy way, you know, it's one of the, the main points that the reformers wanted to uh, get across. Like if you're summarizing some of the, the, the main, the things that the reformers made central, um, a handy way to do it is with the five solas of the Reformation. So you've got 
sola scriptura, sola Christus, all right, by, by um, Christ alone, sola fide, faith alone, soda gratia, uh, grace alone, um, uh, and then you've got soli deo gloria, which is for God's glory alone. And uh, so sola scriptura is also scripture alone. And what that means essentially is that the um, our ultimate authority as Christians, the thing to which everything else must uh, conform, all other beliefs must conform, is scripture. Um, that's not to say we don't have any other source of authority, but it's certainly the only infallible authority, and it's the only um, it's so any other thing that we believe, including things in our traditions, including things that our churches teach, um, they stand or fall based on their fidelity to the scripture. And so, and obviously this phrase alone is very handy for that. Don't go beyond what is written. Um, however, in the context here, um, it'd be kind of weird. I mean, first of all, the new, this is AD 53. The New Testament is not written yet. Um, of course, could be referring to the Old Testament, but uh, that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense in context. I think a better way um, uh, to think of this, and I guess it, it is related to that idea, but it's way more specific. Let's think of it that way. Because um, it's interesting here. He says, don't, when he says, don't go beyond what is written, the what is written is gegroptai. Okay, which is his standard way of Paul's standard way of introducing scriptural quotations. I mean, he does it in a bunch of ways, but when you see that, it's it is written right. Like he's he's basic. He's appealing to the authority of scripture. So this does have a scriptural flavor. And if we look in Corinthians, like what what scriptures has he been up to, and what's he talking about in this context? Notice the things that he's mentioned. So he's he cited Isaiah twenty nine fourteen back in First Corinthians one nineteen. And what is that? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Okay, and then in chapter one verse thirty one, he quoted Jeremiah nine twenty two through twenty three. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Um, and then in chapter 2, uh, verse 9, uh, what uh, he quotes Isaiah 64, 4, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Um, uh, in chapter 3, verse 19, um, another thing that is written, and here, again, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they that they are futile. So there you get a combo of Job 5.13 and Psalm 93.11. Do you notice any kind of common thread there? The only one that is a little bit out of place is Isaiah 64.4. But they're all talking about this idea of wisdom. They're all talking about this idea of like what makes some true, someone truly wise. So again, plug that in to the overall message in Corinthians in 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. And the wisdom of the world is is wisdom that is super impressed by credentials and rhetoric and people who are really learned and people who are really convincing and people who've really got it together and maybe who have a lot of money as well. Very influential. And God just takes that and nukes it in the kingdom of God and turns it upside down and is like, no, God chooses the things in the world that are that are small and foolish and, and, and unimpressive to shame the wise because the wisdom of God is so much greater than the wisdom of man, okay? 
don't go beyond gegraptai. Don't go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond those things, right? Are you wiser than the scriptures? Um, uh, don't say, yes, 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 those things are nice things, but really what we need is an expert in here. Really what we need is somebody who's, um, who's, who, who's, who's wise as the world judges wisdom. I, I probably should put a little bit of a caveat in here that this is does not mean that the church does not need people who are knowledgeable and who 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 know things right like that this is like something like go for uh, go for ignorance or something but uh, it, in fact I mean it's it's interesting when we see scriptures that go in this direction um you know which that say stuff like this like what I've been talking about, um theological knowledge is is in essence kind of understanding the scriptures that are that are written right and understanding what god has revealed to us and that takes some learning to do um that's that's so it, i guess what i'm saying is like all this talk about against the wisdom of the world is not necessarily um to denigrate uh, smart Christians, or Christians who know a lot of stuff, or Christians that are are good at teaching and who are helpful uh, intellectually, but the question is is is, is that knowledge um, is that knowledge um, in line with God's truth? Is is it is it in line with the the values of the kingdom of God, the way that we are to think in kingdom in the kingdom of God? Um, that that's the real question. That's the thing that's being talked about here. So they're not to go beyond what is written. That none, no one would be puffed up in favor against one another. Right. That's the idea that we've been seeing here. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? There is very much like a little bit of a governing principle, right? That you. Um, anything that you're good at, anything that you have, I mean, I just said a word about like knowledge and wisdom and things like that, that comes from God. And that just saps us of all the pride, right? Because it's not because I'm awesome that I, that I have what I have, that I have the gifts that I have, that I have the standing before God that I have. It's, it's because God has chosen to bless me with his grace. Uh, the same goes for all of us, right? Um, and and so uh, another reason why boasting is not really compatible, at least not at least not with, in, in terms of uh, boasting in our own abilities and our own wisdom and stuff like that. Uh, remember, we've talked. I talked a few days ago about like an appropriate Pauline theology of boasting, <laughs> um, and we'll we'll see more of that as we walk through his letters. Okay, uh, then he gets like a, to a really interesting part where he holds out the apostles um, himself uh, included, of course, as like the key example of this kind of thing. And he begins with almost a kind, almost a sarcasm, right? So notice how he starts here. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. Right. And, and, and the idea is that they have this triumphalistic attitude, this attitude of like getting on top of one another. And, and, and it's almost like, like, 
oh man, you you guys have arrived. You guys are the experts because of all this, right? It's this is almost sarcasm, okay? And um, and he says, would that you did reign so that you might share share so that we might share the rule with you, um, and then and then essentially he goes and he talks about what it's like being an an, an actual apostle. What apostle and and being an apostle is not about is not about being great in the eyes of the world. He says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Remember the, the wisdom themes in, in Corinthians, right? But you are wise in Christ. Okay? No notice this, right? Like like um in in and of course I, I think the wisdom and foolishness he's talking about is is worldly the way the world views it views it but it's essentially like if we apostles are counted as fools in the eyes of the world um and you're counted as wise in the eyes of the world doesn't doesn't that kind of tell you that you guys are on the wrong page um we are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are held in disrepute. Just comparing yourself to those, to the, to the examples of like the God of godly people that you know, can sometimes give you a read of whether you're on the right track with how you're living and how you're not. Um, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and still are, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Uh, those nouns that are used there, scum and refuse, um, they're, uh, they're, they're virtually synonymous. Uh, the Greek terms that Paul uses are perikatharma and peripsema. And those both kind of mean the stuff that gets washed off when you scour something. Um, uh, so, like, think like a dirty pot. That's what we apostles are. Um, interestingly, that almost becomes like the nub of what Second Corinthians is about. What he just talked about, like, uh, we follow Jesus, a homeless uh, Jewish itinerant preacher former carpenter okay we are not like these 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 fancy guys who are welcome in king's courts you know um that this this is the idea that that's something about um the, the message you proclaim and how it turns the values of the world on its head is should be reflected in how you live in how you do ministry and um if that's not the case for you corinthians uh, doesn't that tell you that something is wrong? And then he says, like, after having said all this, he says, he's notice how kind he gets. I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Okay, for though you have had countless guides in Christ, Apollos, Peter, right, all those who have come to you, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ. Right, I'm the one who planted the church there. Through the gospel, I urge you then to be imitators of me. And he says, that's why I sent you Timothy, which is news to us, right? We did not know that yet. This is the first time we hear of that. Um, now, it's it's uh, clear from the end of the letter 
uh, in uh, chapter 16, verse 21, that Timothy is not with them at the time of the writing of the letter. Uh, we, could, we see this in chapter 16, verse 10. Paul says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So, you know, Timothy has, Paul had sent him. He's not there now, and he's coming back. But <laughs> this is why I sent Timothy. Okay, uh, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Timothy, of course, uh, being um, one of Paul's closest uh, traveling companions whom we learn about in Acts, um, right? This is the guy whom he had circumcised um, in, in order to not be offense to the to the Jewish people because his, his mother was Jewish, uh, but his father was a Greek. And, you know, we've talked about that a little bit. So he says, I've, I sent you him to remind you of my ways in Christ, Okay, it's it's his way of living. It's not even a doctrinal issue, uh, but the thing is, is like the way of living kind of compromises your doctrine. Like you end up living like hypocrites if you say you 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 love the cross of Christ, then live like it. Um, and I'm and he's going to remind you of my ways. So that's an interesting thing, right? Like that not only does does the uh, not only is is Paul concerned about like the the strict content of his teaching, the gospel message, but there's a way of living that is in line with that message. Um, and he says he does this. He teaches this this way of life. Uh, everywhere he goes. So his very presence there and how he lives among them is part of the is part of the message he brings. He says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon. So notice you get you get an idea that like there are some people who kind of oppose the way Paul does stuff at Corinth. We've already seen this hinted at. Um, and he says, when I come, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Now, it's not like Paul's going to, like, fight him, right? But it's—remember, um, um, he talks about, like, the, how the power is in the gospel, and it, the, 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 the God's power is displayed in the gospel. And so we'll see, like, are these people who really understand the message of the cross? And probably not in terms of, of a theology exam, but again— do they live as the genuine apostles live? Do they live as the genuine servants of Christ live? Or are these guys who 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 maybe know a little bit about Christian theology, um, but their lives do not reflect it, and and their worldly values are rubbing off on you? Um, uh, you know, the, these are those workers that he hints at uh, in chapter three, who's who whoever you know builds on this foundation. You know, as as subsequent teachers roll into your city and try to um, try try to um, um, build you guys up, are they building you guys up in Christ, or are they laying worldly structures on top of the foundation of Christ? And he says, "For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power." Um, they might be good at speaking, good at rhetoric, but do they have the power? Of, of the cross reflected in their lives. And he asks, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Like, it's up to you how this next visit goes. Is it going to be me rebuking you, essentially, um, challenging you? Or is it going to be me uh, affirming you? And is it going to be a pleasant visit? Uh, such as the one that he was, you know, talking about having in Rome, right? Like, that we could be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. All right, everyone, that's it for today. As always, I thank you for being with me, and I look forward to being with you again tomorrow. But until then, keep reading Scripture. Take care, and bye-bye.